1: And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Sklina. And I'm your host, Matt Sklina. And Matt, welcome to the fall market. We are officially after the long weekend. We need the bell. We need the bell. september here it long. Is. It's starting. The fall
2: market is here. Is that the New York Stock Exchange you're belling? That, that is. I'm belling the New York Stock <laughs> Exchange. That's right. But the fall market is here. Super excited. Yes. And there is l- literally, I would say, nobody better to open up the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast fall series of episodes than our guest today. It is founder and CEO of Anthem Properties Group, Eric Carlson.
1: First time on the show. Does not disappoint. That is for certain. Absolutely. You know what? We've had so many people reach out to us and ask us to get Eric on the program. Um, he's, he's definitely, uh, I, I'm going to go beyond fan favorite and say industry favorite. That's right. People that have heard him speak Love how he is just so—he's confident in what he's saying. He's super bright, totally understands. Is he's thought provoking, and this episode really—I think—it's uh, going to be a fun listen. But you're also going to learn so much more and it's it's also super motivational. Well, I, especially like
2: you think of it and we talk a little bit about it. I think it was 92 when he decided to to start Anthem. And don't right. quote me on that year, but early, let's call it early 90s. Has an idea for a real estate development co- company. This is one of the largest companies in Vancouver now. Yes. Uh, talk about scaling. He's in Calgary or Anthem Properties is in Calgary, Edmonton, Sacramento, Uh, They're expanding, it sounds like, to have plans for Toronto. Uh, They've built 15,000 homes. They have 8 million square feet of commercial space. They have over 6,000 acres of land marked for future development across North America. This is a massive company. This is
1: the guy who started it all. And uh, it does not disappoint. This conversation does not disappoint. It is super exciting. We ask Eric so many great questions today, like where he sees the opportunity, what makes a good development site, um, how does he choose markets? How does he find deals? Um, what's his advice for investors? It just goes on and on and on. And then also his thoughts on kind of the market today, the political climate. Um, this is this is really. I, I just want to get to it. Let's get to uh, our sponsor. Let's get to it.
2: And he's very he's very generous with his time for sure. So we we won't waste too much time in the intro here. But we do have a couple things. Yes, our uh, sponsor. Well, we have our sponsor. This is Oakland Realty. This is our brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you're a new agent, an aspiring agent, a seasoned agent who's looking to make a change, consider Oakland Realty. You won't be disappointed. Head over to oakland.com slash join and type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join. Type in VRP 2020. There's a huge incentive for typing in that VRP 2020. It doesn't hit immediately. The the, the real (laughs) win is joining Oakland and sitting down with Michael, Morgan, Eric, Arlene, Shelly, whoever you're going to sit down with. Right but uh but the VRP 2020 does get you that huge incentive so make it sure does. you type that in last but not least it is the fall market adam yes uh, time ring, to list ring your... a ding ding time to <laughs> list your
1: property right you want to be in the sellers club you do yeah it is the most exclusive club in vancouver it's the sellers club the Rep sellers club and here's what you here's what you can do head over to our site or just and sign up or just actually email us info at com and type Sellers Club in. This is the list you want to be on for the most actionable plans available, best resources for selling your property for top dollar in the shortest amount of time in the city of Vancouver. We've already released volume one. We're going to be sending out volume two. These are the best resources out there. Make sure you're on that list. There's free, there's no obligation, but frankly,
2: I mean, I would work with the guys who wrote this. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like they've done this before. <laughs> You can't go to Club Med. I wouldn't recommend going to a club in Yale
1: Town, but you can join this club. This is a sellers' club. It is exclusive. It's all exclusive. (laughs) It's the all exclusive and and inclusive. And it's a great list to be on. So, Matt, without further ado, let's cut to our conversation with Eric Carlson. Enjoy, everyone. Okay, so we're here with Eric Carlson, founder and CEO of Anthem Properties Group. How you doing, Eric?
3: I am doing swell. I'm happy to be around, doing all kinds of fun things here in business. Right on during well, COVID.
2: Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Well, thanks, thanks so much for taking the time, Eric. Uh, can we maybe start uh, with you telling us a little bit about yourself and about Anthem Properties Group?
3: Sure. Um, yeah, I like talking about the company. Uh, I don't like talking about me too much, so I'll change the proportion of time accordingly. Uh, so I'm—I uh, grew up in uh, North Van, um, so I'm a local guy. I've been here my whole life um, in this city, and uh, um, uh, had a nice middle-class upbringing. With from you know, I was raised by two lovely parents. We bickered, but they were great people, and. I have three siblings and we all get along really well. Um, I'd say we have our whole life subject to this, that, and other thing. So I had an excellent childhood. Went to good public schools, played a lot of sports and did community stuff. And then I went to the University of British Columbia because it was the local university because that's what we did in those days and had a phenomenal experience there. I loved it. I loved going to UBC. That's where I learned how to think a bit more deeply than maybe in high school and I played uh, rugby and was on the ski team, and you know I, I hung with my wife, uh, the woman who's now my wife there, and uh, we we both grew to a lot of people, and that was fantastic. Um, uh, you know I I, uh, I worked as I like, I was a business graduate. I guess I have a commerce degree in finance and urban land economics, and um, I graduated in a recession, 1982 and interest rates were like 23%, which is unheard of today with 50 basis point, 10-year bond yields. But um, it, it was very hard to get a job in real estate, so I became a chartered accountant, uh, which is a weird thing for a real estate guy to do, but I needed a job, and they were still hiring. It just, the price I paid was that I had to become an accountant, which was an inadvertent positive because accounting really teaches you to organize your thoughts and categorize information, and there's a ton of financial... Acumen that comes with that training, and so that was actually a, a good little detour. And um you know, we carried on, and I got a job outside of accounting as a, a controller in a development company, and, and then became a kind of a, a, a senior manager there. And then, when I was young, young man, 32, I left, and in the middle of a 1990s recession, I started my own business, which became Anthem Properties. Along the way, I had two kids who grew up, and. Uh, Um, And so we're just a a happy family living in Metro Vancouver. And um, along the way, built Anthem Properties, so I'll pivot to that. And, uh, you know, Anthem Properties today is uh, a pretty integrated, diversified real estate investment development management company. Um, We develop and own uh, income property, predominantly food anchored shopping centers. Uh, we build thousands of homes a year uh, in all forms, whether it's single-family housing, whether it's wood frame, four-story condo buildings, whether it's 50-story uh, concrete high-rise or mixed use where you jam all those uses together together with retail and some office. Uh, we work in four cities. We work in Sacramento, California. We work in Vancouver, which is our biggest market. And we also work in Calgary and Edmonton which uh, has been, we've seen the best of times and the worst of times there. It's a, a real slog, but it's uh, still a good part of the country, and there's actually opportunity there, uh, it, believe it or not. And uh, our, our, uh, we do most of the things we do at Anthem, we do in-house. We do our own sales and marketing, our own leasing, we do our own construction. Uh, so I'd say we're vert- vertically integrated, and we want to take the, the uh, and we pursue these different asset classes. So, the skills required to pursue those asset classes we do in each of the four core cities. And over time, we want to export that skill set to other markets. And so I'd say if we're having this conversation 10 years from now, be working in six cities, You know, maybe another American city and, and, and another Canadian city, which would be Toronto. And uh, uh, doing the same thing we're doing now. Um, and then the other comment I'd make is that in addition Being a real estate company, we look at ourselves as a vibrant organization uh, where we sort of exist as a community of people that are uh, trying to add value to real estate and and create space. But that we're also doing it in a way that's positive for the people that work at Anthem and for the world around us uh, so we can feel happy when we're doing our work. Uh, Happy beyond the thrill we get from achieving things in business when I feel like we're doing something positive to the world. Um, And it sounds corny when I say it verbally. But deep inside, the, I say the the minds and the hearts of the people who work at the company, it's quite a, an important thing for us. And um, I think it's kind of ironic that we view ourselves as people building homes and space to help people's lives get better. But the development community right now has sort of got a bit of a PR issue, especially in Vancouver, where they're kind of vilified for being agents of change and building housing and are being blamed for, uh, you know. High, high housing costs and things like that. And, and so one of the challenges, I guess, that uh, any developer faces these days is to, is to show the world that we're actually just trying to make a variety of things that, you know, that the world needs. So anyway, that's a bit of a pivot. That's not really the company per se, it's just a little thing. But the point I was making is that we want to be a, a vibrant place for people to work, self-actualize, be happy. And we want this company to just keep carrying on. I don't want it just to be like, yeah, we did a bunch of projects back in the various decades and then the owner retired and it all went away. You know, we want the company to keep going well past, you know, my lifetime and well past, you know, the people behind me, their lifetime. I want, I want to ask them to keep learning and adding value and creating space and doing it more all the time and better all the time uh, so that we take advantage of all the work we've done in the prior years. So so it's just I just wanted to add that as yeah we're a real estate company. There's all kinds of real estate things, but we're something more than that too. And I think that many companies are trying to go that way these days as we evolve in our capitalist system. Right. So. Right. Anyway, that's me and that's Anthem in the nutshell.
1: That's that's fantastic. And there's lots to unpack there. But maybe can we backpedal a bit and uh, talk about why real estate?
3: You mean for Eric Carlson?
1: Yeah. Sorry, I know you don't um, like talking. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no problems. No, no, I get it. Uh, personally, okay, there's, there's uh, you know, there's, there's all, all kinds of things that make up a person. There's your, the way you're, you're wired, like your DNA, you're, you're made a certain way. Um, and then there's your life experience, and there's how you react to it. It makes you whoever you are. And um, through my life circumstance, I really wanted, I developed a, a real strong desire to be independent. I don't like people telling me what to do, which is weird because as a real estate developer, everyone in the world tells you what you should be doing. <laughs> but so, but, I, but I, I wanted to be self-employed for sure. I wanted to be able to say that you know, this is the direction we're going to pursue so I could, I could sort of apply all my being to whatever that is. And when other people tell you what to do. It's not what you want. You, know, you don't get the same level of energy, the same level of creativity. So independence was very important to me. And, you know, where does that come from? As I said, you know, my mother told me what to do too much. It pissed me off, you know, like uh, maybe I'm wired this way. I know. So I wanted to be self-employed. And then it's like, what business do you want to be self-employed in? And for me, even though I, I took an unorthodox route to get here, I always liked space. As a little kid, you're building tree houses. You're, you know, you're, you're making little forts in the backyard. You're playing with Lego and Meccano, making things. And it just... Seeing people in space, whether they're working in it or living in it, it always resonated with me. I love every kind of space that human beings make for each other. I kind of just always have been drawn to it. I really like it. So you take those two things, you know, independence, business, uh, 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 liking space. It sort of just leads to you going into that industry on some basis. Um, I didn't really know how to do it. I, I had, My dad's an architect, um, retired now. And uh, so... You know, he had a drafting table in the basement. He'd bring his drawings home on the weekend, and you you look at that, and you integrate it with the you're building in the backyard, and the Lego project you know, on the living room floor. And it, it sort of just just felt felt natural. And so that's the direction I started pursuing outside of university, was, you know, get a business degree so I can learn about what that's about, learn how to be self-employed by watching other people, and pick a, pick a business, and my business was real estate. I looked at other stuff along the way um, because, you know, you can always get your jollies on space by building a house for yourself or buying homes or renovating them as a hobby. Um, But the other businesses as interesting and awesome as they can be just didn't feel as fun. You know, if you're going to be working long hours, you want to like, you want to like the product you're making. So I could have opened a manufacturing company making, you know, table lamps. I don't know, pick anything, a widget, you know, and, I might get off on, on, you know, seeing, seeing it work, but you know, when you like the product, like I love space, then, then it's just that much easier. And it means that much more, you know, I talked about the, you know, the, the esoterical we have of the company as a whole, which is we just like, you know, kind of self actualizing. And I think that being involved in a a product that you love, it just, it helps you get there faster, better. Right. So that's why real estate, I guess. Right. And and now that I'm here, I just absolutely love it. I could, I could, could talk about real estate 24 7 it's it's uh it's just a total passion it's a hobby and a business
2: and and we'd love to we have a lot of questions about real estate but just in thinking about kind of where anthem's at right now and how how you've taken kind of an idea and grown it to what sounds like you're in kind of a stage where you're thinking of a uh, in an institutional culture that lasts uh, far beyond your lifetime and, and legacy. Like when you started, and I'm just kind of thinking about how you scaled so quickly, uh, and so successfully, like when you started, were you, uh, did you have this kind of size of a business in mind? Like how did you approach the, to get to this, this level so quick?
3: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and you're making some statements and I just want to, you know, uh, so you, you mentioned institutional culture, you mentioned scale and, and size and, and speed at which you get to whatever that, spot, that size is. Um, I think that there's, there's two things. I, re- I really want to, wanted a company like in re- real estate, it's really easy to be a, a guy like me and you hire people to help you. And I, as a guy with my people, help me go and build a bunch of projects and it's a, it's a real kick. And it's fun. That's not, a, that's not an organization. That's a guy building projects. And it only lasts as long as that guy is, is willing to lead it. You're not really building an organization. You're building a support team to help you do what you like to do. Um, somewhere along the line, 25 years ago, I, I kind of said, well, where do, where, what do I want this business to be? Do you, do you want to be a guy that just builds stuff or do I, do I want to do something in addition to that? And I picked the, in addition to that, I wanted to build a company. And I remember my very, my very, one of my very early investments, uh, we had an opportunity to do a quick sale on what we were doing and make some money. And I was talking to a friend of mine and he said, well, Eric, you don't really want to do that because even if you make less money on this project, the reason you're building it is because you said you want to build a business and you have to repeat yourself. No short-term gains because you're building a business. That was very good advice, and um, and I think that the idea of building an organization meant that we could probably, in the long run, do better work. When you're the one guy, I call it the great man model. When you're the one great man, you're, you're limited by what your ideas are. You're limited by how willing you are to listen to your helpers. But when you create an organization based on teams. Now you can get other people to join your organization who might get off on it as much as you do, and you can get the benefit of all their ideas. And if you're, if they see a, a path for themselves beyond just helping Eric, then they might give more. They might see more to, they might see more uh, opportunity for themselves. You might build a better team, and so we can do even more, create more space together, um, on a more ongoing sustainable basis by adopting this model and, um, and allows us to dabble in things that as a smaller organization, you can't do like setting up process, like focusing and investing in culture and getting scale to have, having an organization. And, and so that's why we became the way we, you know, what we, you know, more of a company, the way I describe it describes more of an organization as well as a real estate business. And I guess, the price, the benefit is you do, in fact, get scale. You do, in fact, get some really good people who will stick it out with you for a long period of time, which is great. But it's two steps forward and one step back because you spend a lot of money on accounting systems and information systems. You spend a lot of time working with your people, defining your culture, uh, talking about how you do business. It's not just about going out and doing it like when it's just you, like where all your time is basically spent you know, on the bricks and mortar mm-hmm. and benefit benefited. So you say, how, so that, that takes me to scale and size and speed. I think by building the foundation the way we did, you know, it allowed us to grow, you know, grow, I'll say bigger, better, faster, in the longer run. And, you know, we, the company really started like 1991, I think essentially. And so, yeah, I'd say the first couple of years, it was pretty slow, you know, and then it got a little bit faster and then there's, you know, recessions, and it, you take a bit of a hit. Then there's plenty things like COVID. You take a bit of a hit. But by, by and large, when you have when you have the this organization to fall back on, you can get amazing scale and you can grow, right? So, um, and so I think that you know that that's how. Whatever size we are now, whether that's big and whether we did it quickly, I'm just saying. I think we we could only do what we're doing by taking the approach we've taken. And I think that to grow beyond this. We'll need to do more of that we'll need to do more of that organizational work making sure that we can replace um, you know my relationship with a certain key stakeholder with the company's relationship with that stakeholders' relationships and and we do it through you know a culture and organization and systems and process and and um, uh, and carry on but when I say that, the other trick isn't that you have to spend a lot of time on it and it costs money. It's that you have to make sure you never turn into a blob, you know, and a blob to me is what people commonly refer to as bureaucracy, where you're so stuck on process. You're so stuck on so many people being involved in decisions that you lose your agility, you lose your creativity and you become political. And, you know, people start manipulating each other and it becomes like, how do you become the president or the senior vice president and all the bullshit that a lot of large organizations have. And I think you can be a vital company without all that stuff if you focus on on being an organization and you focus on your on, on how you do your business and you talk about it and you have the right kind of uh, best practices and you trust each other and, and you have candid discussions and there's no elephants in the room and all of that. So a lot of my time goes into trying to make, you know, make the company that way. Um, but uh, so to answer your question, if you institutionalize a framework by which people can be agile and bigger, then you can get scale and grow and become whatever Anthem's become at this current time, which is bigger than it would have been if it was just me doing stuff on my own. I'd argue, though, my life would have been a lot easier. That's all I've done. <laughs> <laughs> um...
1: So so eric, you 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 spoke a little bit about some of the markets you're in obviously you're you're doing a lot in the greater Vancouver region, um, Sacramento, Calgary. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, Anthem chooses markets, uh, development sites, and uh, maybe a little bit about where you see the opportunities?
3: Yeah, okay, so let's talk about markets. Um, it depends on the asset class, but basically what the two things I always look for in any market are population growth and job growth. If the population is growing, those people, those increasing number of people, they need a place to be, whether it's a home to live in or an office to work in or a, a store to shop in. And job growth gives it, it, it solidity, if you will. Um, you know, a bunch of retired people, their space, they'll, they'll, you can sell them retirement homes and all that, but they're not gonna work and they don't shop much. You know, and they, you might need a hospital. Right, but job growth that drives the economy, that drives the market, that puts a lot of strength into it. So, I like to see both, right? So, um, when we started off, we, you know, essentially, even though Vancouver is a good city because it's always had population job growth to varying degrees, but when I started in the early 90s, BC was not what it is today, and Metro Vancouver certainly wasn't. It was a hokey Canadian provincial city, it wasn't international, it wasn't getting the kind of growth that it's getting now, even though we'd had a big surge of immigration from Hong Kong in the eighties, it wasn't anything like it became. So I looked around and I picked the first city I picked was Denver, Colorado. And in the 1990s, I probably spent half my time in Colorado and half my time in Vancouver. I picked Colorado because it had job growth and population growth. There weren't a lot of people there. And they also had some really good deals on real estate. So, um, you know, over the years, Anthem's moved around a bit. So currently, we're in the four cities I mentioned, Edmonton, Calgary, Sacramento, Vancouver. But if I went back 20 years ago, we were in Denver, Phoenix, Houston, Texas, Toronto, and Vancouver, and not really in Alberta, a little bit in Alberta, but not much. But that was to be that spread out, we were really just mostly investing in income property. And we found that we made more money if we actually developed real estate, if we reallocated our capital and focused more on development, and developments a very much a local business. And so we started divesting ourselves from those more remote cities and coming back to Metro Vancouver, which was starting to have real growth, you know, starting in 2000, you know, with a, the, there were a whole bunch of, it was a perfect storm of good things for real estate development. So we ended up getting really more focused here. And then, so we became more Canadian and less American, we became more development oriented and less income, you know, investment oriented. And then on um, we still had assets in outlying markets, but they weren't where our core business was. So then we said, okay, we're predominantly Canadian. What's closest that has job growth and population growth? Well, go back 10 years. Alberta was on steroids. I mean, it was growing. And, you know, they're growing at like, I don't know, 100,000 people a year in the province. And each city, Edmonton and Calgary, getting 30,000 new households. It was huge. How to get a piece of it. So we expanded there. We bought a couple of businesses there. Um, real estate businesses to sort of leverage. And we really got, went quite long in Alberta. And um, that was really good for a little while. And then it's been a pain in the ass ever since. Uh, but it'll get good again for reasons we can talk about in a minute. So that's how we got to Alberta. And, and I guess I always pined to get back in the United States. And we, I regret as one of my strategic decisions that we, you know, so got out of the United States and we were so long into it a long time ago, because the United States is a very good market very dynamic, very agile, and depending on the city, there's lots of job growth and population growth. Um, when we bought a business in Calgary, it had an office in Sacramento. So we looked at that as a toll hold to get back into the United States. And as it turns out, Sacramento is a good second city. You know, it's got two and a half million people. Uh, the, the you know A lot of people are moving there right now. It's got pretty good job growth. So, you know, our business there is doing reasonably well. Um, but it kills me that we don't have a big operation in Colorado. We should have stayed. And and I love going to Phoenix, like a lot of Canadians do, because it's warm and sunny in the winter. But it's also a, a pretty easy place to develop in it, and uh, you can get a lot done very quickly. And and uh, you know Texas as well, like you know whether like Dallas is is really growing. And I sometimes I think if we put the effort into developing in Dallas that we do now in Metro Vancouver. We get twice as much done down there, and uh, pre-COVID, and and so it's it's beckoning us. In Toronto, the same thing. I mean, Toronto's just urbanized and growing like crazy in the last 20 years. It's a great opportunity there. And uh, um, so, so when you say how do you pick your markets, job growth, population growth, did I always pick them right? Sure, but we we left markets we shouldn't have. We should have <laughs> taken advantage of the organizational framework to stay there and grow and. It's hard though because I, I'm quite hands-on, and you, know, you can only handle so much, and and so you have to manage your size. Even if you gear yourself to to handle larger sizes, you still have to, you know, be able to chew it, you bite off, and and uh, um, and so you know that's not being everywhere I want us to be is is a result of that. Um, picking sites, you know, I mean that's that's sort of real estate 101. Right? It's like um, you pick sites that that are you know with the year olds of real estate location 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 you know um depending on if you if you are building a a high rise and you, you want to rely on transit you want to be pod you want to be transit oriented you want to be close to uh, metro vancouver sky train station if you're in toronto you want to be near the train or the subway um you know you you want to be near where people work where people can walk you you know you, you might want to be near a highway if you're more suburban but you don't want to be right on it because of the noise and the, and the pollution and all of that and so there's the new one so the primary concern is just you want to be where people want to live or where people want to work and that's going to be wherever they you know this can take into account transportation and, and lifestyle needs and so you know you just take all these qualitative considerations decide where you want to be and then there's the quantity side, which is can you buy the land and you can buy it at a price where you can actually make money if you do the development. And so it's got a pencil. And so picking sites is about what you want to have and it's about what's available at what price. And somewhere in there, if you work at hard, you'll get something and you'll be able to build build some some, some successful projects. Um, So, uh, you know, because we're diverse, you know, we don't always need to be downtown, you know, or, or in an urban area. But uh, in Metro Vancouver, we love downtown city and we love the TOD framework so you know you'll find us in you know anywhere in your sky train we got a lot going on in you know uh on north road and you know Coquitlam, and Burnaby we got a lot going on in metro town um uh, we've got stuff going on in downtown Vancouver um because 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 of, of the transit but, but in the suburbs we recognize that some people don't want to live in a high-rise or live in an urban environment they want to be more suburban and so we'll go to the suburbs but you know, there's an affordability issue, so we really like townhomes in the suburbs. We like trying to create a community around townhomes in the suburbs, and so you know that be a, that strategy would dictate looking for sites that, that allow us to do that. So I guess that would be the third leg on when you how to pick a site is what's in alignment with your strategy, right? So, and then uh, in terms of opportunity, where's the opportunity? I'll give you the glib answer: opportunity is everywhere, always. It's just sometimes it's easier to see and sometimes it's hard to see. So when there's a boom on, it seems like you go where, wherever that action is and you buy something and you'll, you'll do okay. And you might, but that's based on, you know, paying too much for land, moving a bit too quickly, not crossing your trees, not dying your eyes and making mistakes, but the market's growing so much you can get away with it. And, and, um, you know, so in good times, The opportunity is just do anything. Um, And then in bad times, it seems like nothing will work, don't do anything, but really that's where there is maybe deeper opportunity because cost bases might fall. You might get a better deal on land, or more so, you might actually be able to work a deal you'd never be able to work out in a boom because there's too many guys chomping at the bit trying to buy sites. So maybe you can do an assembly you wouldn't otherwise be able to do because the, the, the landowners don't have any, a lot of choice. And so they'll work with you, you know, um, sometimes markets adjust. And if you see the way it's adjusting better than the rest of the market, that creates your opportunity. So for me to, so the, the glim answer is there's always opportunity. And sometimes it's more obvious than other times today. If you were asking where's the obvious opportunity, you know, I come back to job growth, population growth, go to any market where you see that. And, um, and, and hunker down. Now, times are difficult, costs are high, regulation is insane. The amount of regulation facing our business, you can call it urban planning, you can call it taxation, you can call it you know, social license. It's it just, it, it always serves one thing, it increases your costs no matter what. And so we're trying to fight an affordability where the market can barely afford to pay for anything And you've got all this push on cost. You know, when we say, "Oh, you know," people talk about the greedy developers or greedy landowners, and there's an element of that. But really, if land is free today in Metro Vancouver, you still can't. It's still hard to make your numbers work, right? The costs are so high, and and you know, you talk about like construction costs are high because you know there's a shortage of skilled labor, so you got to pay skilled labor a lot. And and then there's there's tariffs on materials now because we're in a deglobalizing world. That drives costs. The fees are insane. They drive costs. The length of time it takes to get to the approval process is four times longer than it should be. And you got to own your land while you go through it. And you got to carry that land and that drives costs, right? So, so where's the opportunity in that? You can find something you can get through quickly. That's opportunity, but it's, it's, it's not systematic. You have to really, really look for it. You know, but as I said, at a high level, you should be able to, if you're, if you're good at your craft, you should be able to find opportunity, any place that's growing. So you pick Toronto, you know, it's hard to make money in Toronto, but it's growing. People always move to Toronto. It's a great city, right? If you went there and set up shop and got good at your business, you'd find a way to make money, but there's nowhere obvious to go. It's not like you can say, like, I know some guy would have said in the 1800s, go west, young man, you know, there's opportunity <laughs> out west. It's not, it's just not that simple anymore. It's challenging and it's, there's challenges everywhere. So, but growth, you need, you need a place to grow. I think that if you, if you don't have that, that's not an opportunity. So typically, so I think I, I think I covered your three questions. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. I, just thinking about, and I'm curious um, to hear your take on, on Calgary and Edmonton in, in a bit, but does like thinking about Vancouver, it's your primary market. It's where you were born and where you, you grew your business. Um, a lot of the challenges you're talking about, we hear a lot uh, about those challenges in Vancouver. Why do, like, why do you stay in this market? And, and does this market make sense from, I guess, from a development standpoint, but also just a, a plain real estate standpoint?
3: That's a really good question. I've asked myself that many times. If, if uh, I only worked in Metro Vancouver, I'd probably be a bit happier. I'd be a bit healthier. I'd be a bit richer. Um, but this, you know, come back to strategy. Um, one of the principal strategies, one of the core strategies of Anthem as a whole is diversification. A I like it aesthetically B it's intelligent. Some like it doesn't always work in, in every market, like different markets, do different things at different times. You know, some like in the 1990s, Vancouver was dead for like eight years. You couldn't make a buck in real estate for eight years in Metro Vancouver. It was dead. There was the population growth had flattened. The government was terrible. Businesses were leaving the city. You know, I was very ha- happy to be doing business in the United States at that time. So it reinforced to me, you know, that decade that you need to be able to work more than one asset class. And you need to be working in more than one market if you want to have a steady, steady growth in your business over time. And. That was my experience and that was theoretically true. Now it's turned out that Vancouver has been highly successful for about 20 years. And, and I've had challenges in some of my other markets. And if only I'd stayed in Vancouver, I'd done better. But you know, it, it, it changed in Vancouver too. It's been hard to make money in Vancouver the last two years. The land got expensive, the governments went insane, all the municipalities tried to solve the affordability crisis on their own, with their own staff, with their own policies. You know it's gotten very complicated i mean burnaby went on a tear. hiatus we didn't improve anything because they had to figure out how to solve the affordability crisis city vancouver got bogged down just because it did you know it's starting to break the log now i'm now finding materials couldn't do anything whereas in sacramento we can get a building permit and a rezoning and development permit in 12 months to do a complicated downtown project and And everyone loves us for doing it. Here they hate you, and it takes you four years, five years, right? So so that's diversification, I think is a good thing. And so I, I look at, so that's why I'm not just in Vancouver. Um, and I think that you know I'm looking at the political situation in Metro Vancouver, or Vancouver, let's take the city of Vancouver. You've got a mayor who's kind of a rookie, nice guy. Um, you've got a council that's totally divided, not unified on a common vision, unlike before. You've got a provincial government that just by its very nature loves to intervene in markets because there's a complete distrust of the business community. And, and that just is going to complicate Vancouver in spite of the fact that we need lots of housing and it should be, this should be Camelot. It isn't. We're getting in our way. We're tripping over ourselves. Right. So, uh, so anyway, that, so I'm okay with the diversification, you know, so then there's Alberta. It was great for a few years, man. It was great. You know, um, Lots of open mindedness, uh, you get things done quickly, lots of population, but lots of job growth. You could really get a lot of stuff done. And it's completely changed because you know the oil economy, which Alberta is founded on, is faltering for all the reasons we read about, and we know that. And then there's the other things like, you know, the CMHC stress test, which made it hard for people to buy homes and and uh, you know, the, the anti Alberta sentiment in the rest of the world. And you know, some lenders won't even lend money in Alberta anymore. And so it's got its challenges, um, but I'm not giving up in Alberta. I could be, I could try to be funny and say it's because I have no choice because we're long there and we are. But I also think that it's got advantages. Like I'll pick on Calgary. It's got uh, three universities. Uh, it's got a ton of young people. It's got tons of engineers. It's got a lot of cheap housing. Like you can buy a, you can buy a brand new small house. Oh, it's a very narrow setback in, uh, in the suburbs for like three hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. bucks. You can't come close to buying a one bedroom condo for that in Metro Vancouver, right? So, you know, so if you are the kind of person that wants to have a house in the backyard, you can get in pretty easily there. If you want to start a new business, if you're in technology or anything like that, I think that there's a there's a real opportunity. there. office space downtown in Calgary now is basically free, right? I could I, if I move down. From corporate office to uh, to Calgary. We probably save about five million bucks a year immediately. Lower payroll tax, like the people in the shoes, payroll tax, costs us over a million a year just for that. Um, my rent would be probably a million a year or less, two million a year or less. Uh, the provincial corporate income taxes are much lower, and and so there's I call it the Alberta advantage. That's how they spun it back in the 1990s. The last time they tried diversifying their economy, there's a real advantage there. So I'm not meaning to dump on on bc and promote alberta i'm just saying there's opportunity there and so that's what i see but it's tough slogging right now and and that i know for sure too so um anyway i that that's me trying to deal with why why am i in alberta why do I continue to be in alberta why am i i'm in vancouver because it's a great market but i also know it's not always great and there's lots of storm clouds that have been hanging overhead for two years and they're not going away necessarily and 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 frankly, I don't want to spend too much time defending Alberta because there's other cities. Like I mentioned, Dallas, Texas, they like developers down there. There's, there's uh, Denver, they don't like, like them as much down there, but there's still lots of people moving there. You know, Toronto, same again. I mean, I see lots of, lots of uh, growth opportunity in other markets and, and I know our business will pursue some of that because we like diversification
2: and and just thinking about a little bit more about Vancouver here like there's a few things that jumped out at me in your in your answer there like one we've had 20 years of of a really strong market uh the last couple of years we've seen all sorts of policy changes storm clouds that potentially are not going away of course uh we've been dealing with covid for the last 6 months H- have you been surprised by how the market's reacted in the last 6 months and what's your take on kind of the next Two, five, ten years in Vancouver. Are you excited about about the future of the city?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Well, when we talk about the market, there's there's two things: there's demand and there's supply, and and there's there's it's, it's, hey, it's the tale of two. <laughs> the, Vancouver, the region, is a, is a tale of many cities. Um, but let's just deal with with demand fundamentally, because Vancouver is what it is with its diverse culture, it's good weather, it's geographic beauty, it's heretofore progressive urban environment, which is bogged down now, but prior to that, it's a very attractive place for people to come to 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 live, uh, to visit, and I think that will continue. Vancouver's in Canada. I think Canada's got a lot of political issues right now, but if you look at the big picture and over the long term, It's a it's a high functioning democracy. We have essentially the rule of law, not always, but usually Um, we have a lot of fresh air. You know, our environmental standards are really high, like all the bullshit about Alberta. Like, I mean, take the drama out of it, like compared to other areas of the world. This is a great place for people to be anywhere in the country. And that's not lost on people, which is why we had prior to COVID, almost 400000 immigrants a year. We have people, our natural birth rate slow, so we have a pro-immigration policy because we need it to keep the company, the country growing, and to you know have people to do all the jobs. So we'll always have people moving here, and we'll always have of those people, a lot will always want to live in Vancouver. So the demand, I think, will always be there. It's almost like programmatic. You can count on 30,000 people more or less moving to Vancouver every year, Metro Vancouver to the region, and you're going to get 20,000 new households a year, rough now. Well, those new households need new housing you know so you need that many housing units every year just to keep those people housed plus there's the national birth rate and all that other kind of stuff so I think that it's always there so what we can do to that demand is we can confuse it we can confuse it by changing your immigration policy we can confuse it by having all kinds of like what happened two years ago uh, with all kinds of new taxes and you know looking for scapegoats and blaming rich people and blaming immigrants and putting out all kinds of new tax Boxes. And what that did is it just freaked out the market. The market's still there. It goes on the sideline. How does it manifest itself? Two extended families, of, uh, the, two, two neutral families of the same extended family from a different culture live together longer before the new one moves out and gets a new home. The 25 year old that would love to go move out stays in his parents' basement suite and doesn't enter the market um, because it's safer to stay there. People who want to move up wait because they're waiting for the market to correct because of all these changes in policy creating confusion. We've had that the last two years. I think that had worked itself out of the system because one thing governments can't do, they can't fool the market in the long run. They can disrupt it. They can muck it up in the short run. In the long run, they can't control it because people do what they want at the end of the day. So what we saw happening in January, like late last year in 2019 and early this year, you saw that demand sort of saying, okay, enough already. Prices aren't really going down They have, they've already gone down as low as they're gonna go. It's time to move. And the move up buyers are starting to move, and the kids are starting to leave the basement suites. And you started to see that that coming back to fruition, which I was looking forward to, was giving the opportunity to tell a provincial government their policies didn't work. Because we all know that they don't. They work in the short run, but not the long run. And and then COVID happened. And so it's like it's another it discombobulates the market. But the interesting thing is that demand's still there. And and with the low interest rates and with people getting used to life with COVID, you're starting to see what we've seen the last couple of months is that the housing market has really come alive and not just in Metro Vancouver, everywhere else where there's this pent up demand. So I think that, that that demand will always be here. And it's only a matter of how much we mess it up with government policy or black swan disruption, which doesn't happen that often. We don't get pandemics that often, right? Okay, so, and then and then there's the, The other side of the market and this is what's frustrating about the region is the supply side you know we've got several sites in the district of north vancouver what's happening there in my mind is criminal you know the idea that you're not allowed to build anything because they're shutting the city they shut the district down no new approvals okay so you know how's the market there it sucks for us because we can't build anything we own land it costs us money to pay property taxes to the district every year you know, but we can't do anything with it. It just sits fallow. There's a shortage of housing. Housing prices in the District of Manor are going back up again. A lot. Why? There's no new supply. What's happening? No new families. No kids. What happens? Schools are shutting down. Sports programs are going unfilled. Forgetting about COVID and the impact of that, just in general. Mm-hmm. Right? So from that point of view, the market sucks. Like if, if we had, like, and you look at like Coquitlam, you've got a, uh, or sorry, in Port Moody, you've got a 28-year-old mayor he doesn't have a ton of experience. I love the energy of young people, but they should listen to older people a little more often. And now that I'm old, I can say that, <laughs> you know, and, and oh, we're trying to keep the council focused on building nothing but high-tech, high-tech offices in Port Moody because that's the future. You're going, okay, you need jobs to have a diverse community. I get that. So make sure you have some zoning for office space. But What people really want in Port Moody is housing and lifestyle. So give it to them. You know, don't, don't try to force water uphill with your own pet ideas. And there's so much of that right now in Metro Vancouver, that it just bogs down the supply side. Try negotiating a community amenity contribution with any municipality now. It takes, some are better than others. Like Coquillum's doing a great job these days. But you know, city Vancouver is starting to try to do a better job. But for two years, they were closed for business. You couldn't get, a, you couldn't get anything done. But anyway, this is a theme you've read about, you've heard about. I just don't think the population enough gets that the problem with affordability in Vancouver, is not that we don't have enough demand management policies, because they don't work. We don't have enough supply. We have too many supply constraints, because because that seems to be the political will. And until that changes, you know, we're going to be a tough market to be in. And then COVID's kind of muted all of this anyway. All these things I'm saying are still there. They're still true. But COVID sort of bought everybody time to sort of Blame other, blame other things than these dynamics I'm talking about. So the future of Metro Vancouver, demand's there. Stop dicking with it. It'll be, st- it'll be strong and steady. On the supply side, like, we've got lots of, of the 400,000 immigrants coming into Canada every year, post-COVID, you know, you're going to get 60,000 coming to BC, and over half of them are coming to Metro Vancouver, at least maybe two-thirds of them. We got to, they're coming whether you like, whether the existing neighbors here like it or not. We got to comment, we got to, we got to plan for it. And so the question is, will the provincial government, the federal government, and the municipal governments act accordingly and facilitate it, or will they, you know, keep it all discombobulated? And my call on that is, I'm seeing progress in the city of Vancouver. I'm seeing progress in Burnaby. I'm seeing progress in Coquitlam. I'm seeing the rock start, like the city of North Vancouver. Contra the district, has always been a rock star in terms of being progressive about urbanization. And I, I think that we'll work that out. So maybe now a year or two of this supply population in certain parts and then, then we'll go back to a new equilibrium and it'll be steady and okay again. So it's okay. It's just right now it's very irritating. Right.
2: <laughs> maybe as a, as a final kind of question here, Eric, we have a lot of uh, Aspiring investors, uh, kind of mom and pop investors, people that have two, three, four doors. Um, you started your career in kind of a number of markets across North America, uh, looking at investment real estate. If if you were a mom and pop investor right now, uh, where and what would you buy?
3: Huh. That's a tough one. Depends how much money that that investor has. I mean, like ideally if somebody was very passive about real estate would save their money and they'd buy property directly, they would buy a condo and rent it out. Uh, they'd buy a second house, put it in a basement suite, rent that out, you know, and manage it. And, and, um, they'll, they'll get the most direct correlation to the market that way. Um, and there are mom and paw investors who do in fact do that. I mean, I look at some of the more aggressive and progressive younger people, well, my son's friends are are trying to do that. They save their money and they invest in real estate directly. I think in a city like Vancouver, uh, that's probably a good thing in the long run. If somebody just has a bit of money and they want to invest, um, they can always go to the stock market. And there are not a lot of publicly traded real estate companies, but there are a lot of REITs. And I think that to buy units in a REIT, you're going to get steady cash flow from from rents. I think that the industrial... Uh, reits and the multifamily rental reits are probably a bit stronger in terms of steady cash flow, but you got to pay a bit more for them. Uh, those could be good investments. Um, the other thing they can do is uh, there are there are so I'll call them near banks. Uh, you know uh, where people, business people, syndicate mortgages, and so what they'll do is they'll deal with uh, a series of mom and pop investors. You know collect money from them, bundle it up, and then land out money to uh, say a developer as a second mortgage and get a slightly higher rate of interest. Um, if investors found people like that, that that's, a, that's a good sort of rate of return from a relatively secure investment working with other people have a degree of expertise. And then finally, um, not so much with us, like bigger mom-paws can do it with us, but you, know, you, you find real estate operators to co-invest with. So we have partners in all of our projects. Now, at this point in our history, Many of our partners are like ultra high net worth uh family businesses, uh institutions and, and other real estate companies, and, and I'll say high net worth individuals. There there are companies that sort of are a lower down notch than that. So I'd say that for a uh you know a a well-to-do mom, and pa, you know, you could probably invest with Anthem and companies like Anthem, but for somebody who's just got a little bits here and there. Uh, you'd have to find somebody who's like a classic real estate syndicator uh, who relies on, you know, uh, exempt offerings through securities legislation, and you raise money, you know, fifty thousand bucks at a time to go buy an apartment building or invest in a in a real estate development. And uh, uh, but you gotta be careful when you do that because those people don't grow on trees, those syndicators, and um, it doesn't. Sometimes they don't always have the degree of sophistication. They're just starting out, and you gotta be careful, and you gotta be wary of that. But I mean, there are opportunities there. Um, the good thing about the REITs is they're regulated. I mean, I, I hate regulation, but I mean, they have to file reports at a certain time that professional management, they have a board of trustees that oversees the management team. Um, if something goes wrong, there'll be somebody there to fix it. Um, you know, I think those are, I still think those are pretty good opportunities for investors with smaller amounts of money. And um, uh, yeah, so I think that, yes. Yeah, so direct investing if you can pull it off and indirect investing through public markets or you know syndicators uh mortgages and or real estate
1: that's that's great advice uh we we do have this segment called the five wire five quick questions can you stick around for that sure so five quick questions about uh about Vancouver uh, just to wrap up so what is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver
3: it used to be I'll call it the downtown east side like chinatown uh, you know, Carroll Street, West, West Pender, transition to East Pender, I was, you know, Strathcona, that whole vibe down there. I really, I really like uh, uh, the good parts of it, and um, that would be my favorite neighborhood.
2: Favorite bar or restaurant?
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm old and I'm embarrassed. Uh, I'd have to say it's Umberto's, just because I like Italian food and there's always a good vibe. It's got a little bit to uh, look at me ish in the last few years. It's where all the Cool people go, and I'm definitely not a cool person. Um, I like Nightingales a lot. You kind of be not cool and still have a good meal there. Right. Um, and, then, and to be fair, and if I can get it, if it's Saturday and I'm feeling like I'll sneak to White Spot on my own and get a triple O, so give it that. That would be
1: great. I thought that would be your first one. <laughs> um, a, a, a book you'd recommend that everyone read?
3: A book that I recommend that everyone reads. I, this, again, is a nerdy answer. Uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Steve Covey. is written for anybody. And if anybody actually l- reads it and understands it and starts applying it, their life will get better. It's not fun. It's not like reading a cool novel, but but that would be the book I'd recommend that's a good one. to anybody.
2: One piece of advice you'd give your 18-year-old self, or it sounds like uh, you have a son that's uh, maybe a little older than that. but
3: Yeah. I have two sons, uh, 31 and 28. Uh, yeah, and, and they do. I think they do do this. My advice to any 18-year-old would be, listen. Like like when I was 18, when he was 18, you really know. You're starting to really know how things work, and you'll you'll learn it once, and you go, that's the way it is, and you stop listening uh, for a long time, like for 10 years. And I think that establishing a habit of listening uh, will make your life way better. And that would be my single best piece of advice.
1: And last, last question, something you've purchased for under a thousand dollars. That's changed your life.
3: My Garmin Phoenix five, uh, uh, watch sports watch. It's it, like, it's amazing. It's, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's custom fits any, like almost any sport. Keeps track of all the data. You can measure your progress and, uh, you know, it was a 700 bucks, a lot of money for an electric watch, but this watch can do anything. I mean, you can swim with it. You can mountain climb with it. You can ride your bike with it. You can crash into a rock and a tree with it on your mountain bike and it <laughs> keeps on, it keeps on working.
2: Right on. Well, well, we took more of your time than we, we meant to there, Eric. So thanks so much for, for a really interesting conversation. Um, and I guess last, how can people find out more about Anthem Properties Group and what you guys are doing?
3: Um, well, we have a website, and I think you could learn about us through that. We have accounts on LinkedIn and Instagram and all the social media channels. Uh, if you follow us there, you would, you'd learn a lot about us. We do a, a, a tri-yearly newsletter that describes what we're working on in assets, talks about the human side of our business a little bit, and that's a good source of information too, and I think that is you can get that off the website uh, if you go to like, like, you know, about Anthem and whatever there, I think that'd be the best thing to do, and then just do some googling, and you'll see, you'll see uh, everyone's opinion on us, even the trolls on all the anti-development sites. So, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but more importantly, you get the real good from us, so that's where you find it out.
2: Right on. Well, th- thanks again, Eric. Really, really appreciate your time.
3: Uh, take care, you guys. All the best, and well, our paths will cross.
2: So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Eric Carlson, founder and CEO of Anthem Properties Group.
1: You know, when we first started the call with Eric before we actually started the interview, uh, we said, how's your day going? And basically he said, you know, I've had – I'm on like my third or fourth meeting. It was early in the morning. And his comment was, I'm, I'm feeling great. Things are getting done. But yeah. you can you can hear that in his energy, right? It's just like he's just getting stuff done, and I don't want to use the word stuff, but there's this is a PG family show, and uh, he's just getting things done. That's right. He he's definitely getting things done, and
2: uh, you know what? The other thing that struck me about that conversation was, and I mean he's he's made a lot of a lot of deals, a lot of bets in his time, but not every bet's a home run. Not a, not right. every deal is a home run in the end. It's showing uh, up. Too. Yeah, and, and and taking taking the shots, right? Yeah. I mean, you're not going to get it every time. But uh, that was such a great conversation. And so uh, I feel really lucky that we got Eric to, to take an hour out of his day.
1: We ranked as the fourth best meeting of his morning. <laughs> I don't know if you'd think you got much done yeah. <laughs> during this conversation, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I felt very productive. We should have said that. Like, uh, we're here to change that. <laughs> <laughs> Slow it down. <laughs> Anyways, no, I uh, really appreciate Eric. Uh, and everyone who actually recommended that we have Eric on the program, we appreciate you reaching out. If there is a guest that you'd like to hear on the podcast, always feel free to reach out. Um, Matt, before we cut for the day, we also have to mention the most exclusive club in town, the Sellers Club. That's right. The fall market is here. The
2: Sellers Club is open and ready for you to become a member. There's no obligation, no cost. There is bottle service. There is bottle service and it's and
1: it's it's a safe club. It's a safe space. It is. It is. We'll we'll make Secret wear a mask. And uh here here's what you're gonna get. You're gonna get the top resources that we're creating to sell your home for top dollar in the shortest amount of time. That's what it is. That's what the sellers club is. Volume one has already gone out. Volume two is coming. These are gonna be just and, and it's not put out and overtime. it's not
2: wishy-washy stuff this is like Actionable step items. one,
1: step two step three
2: and uh I mean it's it's very clear there's a clear path to getting top dollar it is in the sellers club head over to vancouver real com and sign up there or send us an email at info at vancouver real com. speaking of vancouver real com, that is our website head over there all things real estate. We have the live wire. This is our weekly mailer. All real estate resources you're gonna be privy to. You're gonna have updates on our episodes, the sellers club, easiest way to sign up, deal of the month, the stats, submarket stats. There's no reason why you shouldn't be on the live wire. We also have the tried and true private client
1: services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. And I know we've got a lot of power walkers out there. PCS is basically, it, it's, uh, you know what it is? It's the best way to search for real estate in Vancouver. They're just actually tweaking the PCS program right now. They're doing some beta testing, but this resource, you know, it, it gives you sold prices. It gives you days on market. It basically gives you realtor-level information. never miss a property. It's realtor-level information for free at your fingertips. You can sign up, com. If you want to talk about that, the Seller's Club, uh, anything Eric said, anything
2: real estate related at all, or the fall market- Give me a shout, seven seven eight eight four seven
1: two eight five four, or Matt at Vancouver dot com. Or you can try me at seven seven eight eight six six four five seven four, or Adam at Vancouver Real dot com. We also got that secret line info at Vancouver Real dot com. And shout out to Secret this, uh, this. Week actually, because he's getting surgery, he's getting surgery, and and he's one of the toughest guys we know. So, a lot of people are concerned. A lot of people are concerned that you know this carpal tunnel might
2: take secret down (laughs) the peg, but uh, I'm not so convinced that that that's the case. Did
1: you know that death once had a near secret experience? That guy's so tough, (laughs) Uh, honestly. He's uh, (laughs) I heard the flu gets a a secret shot every year (laughs) just just in case, (laughs) just in case. That guy's tough as hell. Have a good week, (laughs) secret, Take, take
3: care.